0: Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. Judith von Prockel founded Gourmet on Tour in the year 2000. These were the very early days of culinary tourism. She's half German and half Hungarian and has always been fascinated by travel and different types of cuisines. This is a curiosity that was nurtured by extensive travels during her childhood and growing up cooking in her grandmother's kitchen. After graduating, she spent many years in travel publishing and with Amazon.com, but her heart was always in travel, so she left a corporate career to follow her passion. She's been a backpacker, a trekker, an adventurer, as well as an executive business traveler. Who she is today is the result of these trips and living in eight countries so far, currently in Singapore. During all these travels, she noticed that what really brings people together in any culture is food and sharing a great meal. Welcome to episode three of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. I'm Eric Wolf and joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale.
1: Hi, this is Ashi and I'm really looking forward to interviewing Judith on our podcast today.
0: Joining us in the studio today is Judith von Prockel, owner of Gourmet on Tour. Judith founded her food tour company in the year 2000 and as a nearly 20 year veteran of our industry, she's also considered to be one of the food tours and pioneers in our industry. Welcome Judith.
2: Hi, Eric. Hi, Aisha. It's really, really lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast.
0: Glad you could join us. So, Judith, you have an interesting background. You were brought up half German and half Hungarian. So, you were open to the idea of different cultures and mixing them from an early age. Would you agree?
2: Uh, Yes, absolutely. Like you said, I'm, I'm half German, half Hungarian, and I've always been fascinated by travel and different types of cuisine. I was lucky enough to. To grow up in a very international household, and my parents were great travelers, so they nurtured my curiosity for traveling and tasting different foods around the world since early childhood. And I also grew up in my grandmother's kitchen, so cooking up lots of different German, Austrian, Hungarian recipes.
0: Do you speak both languages?
2: I understand enough Hungarian. Of course, I speak fluent German because that, that's my mother tongue, actually.
0: So you're just enough Hungarian to get into trouble in a restaurant?
2: Yes, or <laughs> trouble in my family. Yeah, <laughs> half my family speaks Hungarian at home, but I, I do understand if they start speaking about me and what they're, what they're about to say, yes. Yeah, so, and I picked up a couple of other languages along the way. Um, I speak a bit of Chinese because I uh, spent the last 10 years in China. And enough French and Italian and Spanish to read the menus.
0: That's the important stuff, right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Judith, you had a a really interesting biography. I was reading through it and you had a a career with Amazon and then you decided just to abandon it and start your own company. What was the tipping point that made you decide to abandon what some people would perceive as a safe career with Amazon?
2: Yeah, well, I, I, well, I, I studied uh, business administration and followed a classic corporate career first in, in travel publishing with Insight Guides, which further nurtured my travel uh, curiosity more from um, behind the desk rather than being on the road. And then I continued with Amazon, which was an amazing company. And I was there in the early days, 20 years ago. But as Amazon became more corporate and, and my heart was really in traveling, I, I decided to take the plunge and, and lead the corporate career and follow my passions. And I've been a backpacker and a tracker, an adventurer, and as well as an executive business traveler. And so I've seen um, different, many different types of the way to travel. I've also had the opportunity of living in many, many countries. So I think this is my eighth country now, living in Singapore. Yeah, I really thought I would turn my passion into a business. So I became a lifestyle entrepreneur, if you can say so.
1: Speaking of adventure, Judith, can you tell us about your year of adventure when you decided to travel around the world with your family? It sounds so amazing. And there are so many people who would love to be able to do that, but feel like they can't. And I want to hear how you were able to make that happen.
2: I've always wanted to take a year out with my family and it has been a dream for a long time but we never found the, the right time to do it and you know there are always excuses why not to take the plunge when an opportunity came up that we were moving countries and my daughter had a school change you know it, it was a natural break for us to to consider a year sabbatical. It was challenging to, to pull it off I have to say because first of all you know my husband had to wrap up his business. I had to ensure that my company, Gourmet on Tour, can continue to smoothly while we're on the road. Then there was our daughter. We had to take her out of school, which is just- and not really the norm in in a Chinese school system, mm-hmm. uh, something completely unheard of. Yeah, so we took her out of school, and we had to ensure that this year will be uh, educational for her. It, will, it should be fun and also safe. It was a challenge to design an itinerary, which pleases, you know, everybody in, in the family through um, the many, many amazing contacts I had gathered through Gourmet on tour, friends, extensive sweatshirt. We managed to pull it off, and it was the most incredible, fulfilling year you can imagine. I'm happy to share any of our experiences for those who are considering to go.
1: I thought it was really interesting that you said you. one of the bigger challenges was having to pack into one suitcase for each of you clothing that would that you would need for negative twenty degree temperature to forty degree temperature. So can Yeah, you tell us yeah
2: bit that, bit that was quite a challenge form. to reduce yeah. your your luggage or, you know, any equipment you need for one year to twenty three kilos per person. That was not easy packing. So every single item which goes into that luggage counts. And we had to cater for conditions Yeah, from the Antarctica, which was even summer, we had minus 20 degrees there, especially because we were camping out on an ice shelf and to plus 40 in Egypt, you know, where we had to have all the clothing and layers for all conditions. Funny enough, when we came back, I think four weeks after the returning from our trip, I still uh, continue to live out of that suitcase. And I realized that we don't actually need that much stuff.
0: <laughs> Judith, you're one of the pioneers in the culinary tourism industry. Did you first decide that food tourism could be an industry and you wanted to be part of it? Or did you start the company that you wanted based on your interest and the industry grew up around the company you created?
2: I think the latter. I started my company purely out of passion for both food and, and travel and to be honest I think 20 years ago there was very very little information available on on food tourism as, as you know you know and it was just the beginning really of the internet so there was not much online thanks to people like you we have now a lot more information and data but in those days we didn't Wherever I traveled, I tried to squeeze in a cooking course if available. And I just personally had so much fun interacting with local chefs, going to the market, trying street food, which I wouldn't have tried otherwise, because I didn't know whether it was good or safe. There was fun to have an expert taking me around. And I thought, you know, maybe if I really love it, and my friends really love it, I'm sure our clients would love it too. But again, there was no data. I didn't know how big the market would be. Also, it was a complete new industry for me and a career change. So I had no contacts, no network I could draw upon. What I did was I left Amazon and I got in my car and I ventured out on a three-month research trip to through France, Italy, and Spain. And I just knocked on everybody's door and people were extremely welcoming. You know, I met the first few chefs and they all referred me to another chef and Antonio said I need to speak to Giovanni and Giovanni said I need to speak to Stefano and people were just incredibly enthusiastic and I thought okay if so many chefs think it's a good idea and it was novel to them as well then there must be something in this idea and we just started from there and started really small but now we work with I think 500 different chefs around the world and operate in 20 countries. And here you are 18 years later. I know I can't believe it. (laughs)
1: And culinary tourism is such a big industry now. Judith, you call yourself a travel specialist and not a tour operator, and is this a conscious choice? I just think a
2: specialist is more of an umbrella term and I'd maybe suggest that we are experts in a specific area. Tour operators also have a connotation sometimes for being mass Mm tour operators. So I wanted to stay away from that. Yeah, we do act as either tour operators or sometimes even travel agents, but we like to call ourselves travel specialists.
1: (laughs) Got it. And after you met your chefs in Italy and Spain... How did you get that first traveler to use your service?
2: Well, here my experience from Amazon was really helpful. I was part of the international marketing team setting up our business in the UK. Of course, I learned a lot of online marketing and that was that came in very very handy for setting up Gourmet on Tour. We do a lot of different marketing activities, but everything channels back to our website. Our first client came through our website. It was amazing to receive our first line and yeah, she had an amazing time and we never looked back.
0: Judith, you, you, whether you're called a, a travel specialist or a tour operator, you bring together the full package for your customers to buy and enjoy. And I know on on tours, many things can and do go wrong, and your your customers may never really know what crises lie behind the curtain. Was there one situation in the history of your company where things just weren't going well at all? And if so, how did you turn that into a positive situation for your customers?
2: There was one group of ladies I can think of who came you know, eight ladies, and they kind of missed to tell, even though we asked them beforehand, you know, what their dietary requirements are, we always ask everybody for allergies and food preferences. And they they kind of missed to tell us a lot of the requirements they had. So we ended up having every single lady had a different food allergy, which was, quite interesting for our chef the poor chef had to come up basically with eight completely different set of menus you know during his cooking class I think it was a pretty hard week for him but like you know everybody was happy and when we pulled it off just take it as a extra challenge and keep life interesting I guess <laughs> but I can't really think of anything else bad happening I mean touch wood I have to really touch wood here almost 18 years and we haven't had
1: any Any really bad incidences. That's great. It speaks to your level of planning and organization. We try. We try. How did you decide which locations you would offer culinary tourism? I know you started off in the Mediterranean after a trip that you made and after that how do you decide which locations you're going to offer these experiences? Like
2: you mentioned we, we started with the Mediterranean and these are classic food countries you know France, Italy and Spain you know these are our best sellers this is where our bread and butter is I'm an adventurous at heart and I like to include more adventurous countries too mm-hmm. so Morocco they're coming very, very popular destination for us. We've included India, Sri Lanka, new is Peru, and we're pretty strong in Asia as well. I know some of these countries very, very well, so they are close to my heart. There are some amazing chefs. The infrastructure has to be right. What's really important is really great accommodation as well and booking class facilities. So so it's really a whole mix of ingredients we need to launch a new destination.
0: Judith, in earlier discussions you were talking about how sustainability is a major concern, and I see businesses of all kinds practicing some kind of sustainability, whether it's a restaurant or a hotel. But we still come across hotels that don't recycle. And we still come across overpackaging of food and beverage products. And of course, those cheap buffets, which encourage people to overeat and to waste. What do you think it will take to get the entire food and beverage industries worldwide to be rowing in the same direction when it comes to sustainability?
2: Well, I think one bottle at a time or one um, plastic plate at a time. So what we work with small suppliers, typically small hotels and smaller agencies or suppliers. They are on the same wavelength as we are and it's very easy to talk to them and they, they will provide the same services and um, implement the same sort of sustainability policies as we would want. The bigger hotels, I think there's a lot lost in administration and you know it's it's just harder to shift that mindset, but we don't work with those. We work with the smaller cells, so that they're, they're very susceptible, I guess.
0: So you're able to make an impact then really at more at the grassroots level, at the smaller business level and That's hopefully right. that'll bubble up to the bigger companies.
2: We will hope so, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> And our clients are very environmental conscious and on the same wavelength as well. I think it takes a certain type of traveler to go on a food holiday because they're very interested in, in experiences. They really have their feet on the ground. They support local food businesses. Otherwise, they wouldn't go on that type of holiday in the first place. So I think we have the same thoughts.
1: Judith, would you share the story about the airline catering executive for whom you created this incredible food tour?
2: That was quite an um, uh, amazing brief. Uh, Johan is um, one of the, uh, well, he's the executive chef of the biggest airline catering company in in the world. He came to us with a brief that he needed to increase more ethnic food offerings uh, for his first and business class travelers around the world mainly he he was interested mainly in Chinese cuisine because of the major emerging market and also Thai cuisine we organized a very in-depth itinerary for him to travel through these two countries meeting the top chefs in the countries attending master cooking classes you know and and usually you know where we teach somebody five regular guests maybe five dishes in a class he wanted to learn 30 dishes in a class because he can go straight to the point of being a, a professional we arranged all the market visits, spice and food tours with all the top experts, um, restaurant inspections, meetings with industry professionals and supply chain, along with all the travel arrangements. It was incredibly challenging, but it worked out really, really well. And he's been a repeat customer for, for many, many years now. It's been lovely to do something completely different. And like I said, you know, it, it keeps life interesting as well. It's not to always produce the same itineraries.
1: Who would you say is your typical customer and where do they come from?
2: We don't really have a typical customer. What they have in common is that they are all passionate about food and mm-hmm. authentic experiences and they don't mind rolling up their sleeves and get hot and sweaty in the kitchen and mm-hmm. taste sweet food uh, up to Michelin star gourmet dinners. There are people from all walks of life. They, um, we have a lot of couples, friends, a lot of mother and daughter trips, mild sick birthdays, honeymoons. you name it would design anything for anybody.
0: (laughs) Speaking of kids on tour, it's no secret that kids are obsessed with their smartphones. And you were telling us earlier that uh, social media is a bit of a distraction and can be frustrating when customers are playing on their phones all the time instead of living in the moment. Still, customers are getting younger and younger, which means there's more Generation X and now even millennial customers. And for Mm -hmm. those younger generations, Mm -hmm. smartphones are, are really almost surgically attached. So it's important for travelers to be able to document our meals and experiences so we can share them later. Do you see this behavior ever changing?
2: Probably not. And and especially for the millennials, if you're trying to target millennials. You have to create Instagrammable moments for them because that's what they're after so your food has to be instagrammable your you know your location it's an important marketing tool i just spent last week in marrakesh at pure as i mentioned before but also i spoke to a couple of the hotels there and then one of the more um, famous on instagram mentioned that they get more than 90 percent of their bookings through instagram so that's impressive number they cater to a certain market it's an incredibly pretty hotel and everybody want to take a picture at their beautiful pool that's their major draw their their customers become their heroes and they take lots of pictures and they will post them and tag their friends and this is how you know that cycle so i don't think that will stop in the near future be attached to your phone but it's, in, it's important for us as marketeers as well it's just that sometimes it's sad if a client just looks at their screen and misses a magical sunset or being actually in the moment or taking the opportunity to talk to a local person when they rather spend time on the phone. But I guess we've all been guilty of that. too. So.
0: <laughs> the customer becomes the hero. I love that. that is, that's a takeaway for sure. Judith, mm.
1: In your experience, how has marketing specifically for food travelers changed in the past 20 years? How do you source your customers today?
2: We have many, many different marketing activities, you know, from the classic PR to uh, online marketing and our social media has have really increased and we employ Instagram and Facebook and recognizing that these are important channels to acquire customers but I think when it comes down to uh, um, the numbers I think when uh, what I see most is that we we grow through referrals which is the most actually gratifying and a great compliment to us as well if we have repeat customers or referrals coming coming to us because then we've already been vetted by their friends so they make it easy for us
0: <laughs> is there any marketing time that, that you just don't do anymore, like print advertising or email marketing? Because 20 years is a, is a long time and, and a lot has changed. So I just wondered if there is something that you're just not doing anymore.
2: Yeah, we definitely don't, don't do any print advertising, but we've never done that. But now I'm even more convinced that we shouldn't be doing it. And even press, we were lucky to have over the years to have some really amazing press coverage, which is wonderful. And we're proud of it and, and honored to be included in some of the very prestigious magazines. It's great for credibility and it's nice uh, to pass around to our clients. And, but I think it doesn't really convert into sales. On online marketing or social media is probably has a much stronger ROI than anything in print.
0: Do you Sadly, have a because I
2: actually come from a publishing company. <laughs> I mean, my family business has been in publishing for over 200 years. So I'm sad to say that, actually.
0: So you're an expert yeah. publisher.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, but things have changed, especially in the last 200 years.
0: <laughs> it sounds like Instagram was probably your number one favorite. Would you say Facebook is second or do you have another platform you like better?
2: I think it serves different target audiences. So Instagram is much younger and caters more for the millennials and it's much more visually driven. I love it because I love photography and for food and travel. It's just a natural. But I think Facebook is probably more where our target audience is at they're slightly older and also communicate a lot more in-depth information articles and food related um, content whereas like on Instagram it tends to be really very much just photography so different purposes but it's all in a mix I guess.
1: Thinking about uh, the last 20 years Judith if you could give yourself advice what would you have told yourself 20 years ago?
2: If I could give any advice um, to anybody who would like to start in this business or in fact to any entrepreneur, you should know your vision and stick to it. I think we are constantly tempted by great new destinations, food products, wonderful chefs lots and lots of suggestions and ideas I think actually there's an information overflow Mm -hmm. but so you have to be really 100% clear about what's right for your company and what's on brief for your brand and what's important on a great fit for your client otherwise your focus is really lost one other advice perhaps is especially if you're changing industry like I did so coming from travel publishing and Amazon into the food travel industry it would be really good to find yourself a mentor and learn the ropes from an expert. I think that will save you a lot of time and try on error. I wish I had that in my early days, actually. So,
0: It's interesting you talk about visioning. That has been a common theme for all of our podcasts so far. Oh, really? Yeah, we had a, our first uh, episode was a gentleman from Zingerman's, and he wrote a couple business books. And visioning was one of the strongest things. If there was one thing that he could say that was the most important thing that someone should follow is vision to clarify their vision and to follow it and then adjust it as time goes on. That was something that came out of the last episode as well. Two young ladies, their sisters, who started a food truck, which became a restaurant. Now they've got a cookbook and so on. They were doing well, they were accelerating their growth, but they didn't have a vision. And so now they're just in the process of visioning to make sure that they have a clear strategy going forward.
2: I mean, of course, we've been in a business now for almost 20 years and things do evolve and your clients change and you have to keep up with the time. So I think you have to have a clear vision because there are just too many ideas floating around. And if you're not focused and if you're a small company, you just don't have the resource to put behind destinations which may not be economically viable. Like I, I mentioned before, I'm a, an adventurer by heart. And I would love to promote Antarctica, but that's there's there's just not that interesting for food travelers. <laughs> So so I need to stay very focused on, what, you know, snow, what, cones,
0: what... snow cones don't sell to <laughs> no, Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Would um, you be able to share what your vision for the company was and how you've kept it the same? Well, my
2: vision originally was that I will offer hands-on cooking courses around the world. So Mm -hmm. I was all about cooking courses and, of course, uh, a couple of wine tours because food and wine go hand in hand. But, you know, as we evolve and markets evolve, an emerging market like China evolves, I also have to see what the customers demand. For instance, my Chinese customers, they're much more into tasting than actually cooking. That also, that's my Singaporean customers as well, that they prefer to have a fine dining meal and go on a food tasting tour, you know, um, like a patisserie tour in, in Paris, but they don't necessarily want to stand in the kitchen and cook. So we have evolved to cater for the different types of food, food travels. There are, people are more active and they're the bakers, I would say.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Judith, you've been running Gourmet on tour for almost 18 years now. Do you see yourself ever getting out of the food travel business? Or perhaps a, a better question might be, what's next for you?
2: I don't think I'll I ever want to leave this industry because I really love and breathe it. and. Every morning when I get to my desk and start writing new itineraries for clients, I'm as excited as I was 18 years ago. So I don't see myself getting out of this industry anytime soon. And what's next is probably um, a new exciting destination. I'm looking at a couple of new destinations to launch by the end of the year. We usually do that during our low season. We have redeveloped all the new itineraries, the low season starting like next month. For us. So over the winter, we'll, we'll come up with a whole bunch of new products. Yeah, I'm very excited. There will be a lot of new South American products, especially because we just spent that year out with my family. We spent nine months out of that year in, in South America. There will be a strong bias in, for South America in our new product range.
1: Judith, can you tell us something you learned from someone inspirational that you'd like to share with us?
2: Yeah, I think if I learned one big thing over the last 17 years is that you really have to have passion for what you do. Who inspires me the most are actually our chefs we work with. They're actually the heart and soul of our culinary tours anywhere we go. They're true artisans and are just so passionate about what they do. When I observe how they work, they really taught me that you have to be passionate, curious, and demand excellence in whatever you do. Otherwise, you don't have the perseverance to see it through and overcome challenges in your work. Yeah, look for something you really love. If your work is going to fill up a big part of your life, the only way to be truly satisfied and do great work is if you do something you really love. So if you haven't found it, keep looking. Um, Don't settle, you'll know
1: when you find it. That's great advice. You had mentioned earlier about a quote that you really loved and have lived by. Can you share with us that quote today? It's actually a quote by Gandhi and it says, live as if you were
2: to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. I find this quote really, really inspirational. And I live by this mantra daily, um, living life to the fullest, being curious and constantly learning And I believe that through these principles, we can truly experience life to its greatest potential.
1: Looking back, Judith, was there something you wished you could do over, perhaps a mistake you made or a decision you made and wish that you could just wipe the slate clean and do it all over again? If you could, what would that be?
2: Let me say that I don't really have any regrets. The last 17 years have been truly amazing with Lots of ups, and yes, of course, also some mistakes. Every mistake can teach you on how to do something better for the next time. And to me, the biggest failure is if you don't take a mistake, learn from it and uh, remember it. So no regrets. But there are two things I would have done better if I was starting out again. One of them is uh, taking more risks. If you think of um, becoming an entrepreneur is in itself a, a big risk to many. But once you're in that role, your mentality actually changes. Well, at least for me, or if it's your own money. So for me, leaving Amazon meant quite a big opportunity cost. And I had a lot of my personal savings invested in Gourmet On Tour. And that kind of thinking can easily lead to a more conservative style of management and limiting the risk you take this approach won't ruin you and probably can guarantee you a steady line of revenue for the foreseeable future. But taking a little more risk would have probably accelerated our growth tremendously at the beginning, especially because culinary tourism was in its infancy then and uh, there were not many players in the market. So I think we could have grown faster earlier on if I would have taken a bit more of a gamble. The second thing is hiring the right people right from the get-go. So I think um, new entrepreneurs have a lot of great ideas and tend to be energetic and making fast decisions, wanting to launch very fast as possible. But you need also a, a team of dedicated, hard-working, reliable, trustworthy co-workers, and they have to be. Fun, approachable, service oriented passionate about food, worldly, and preferably have traveled to all the destinations we offer. So let me tell you, they're really, really, really hard to find. (laughs) I think if I would have done it all over again, I would have really tried harder to find these precious people and launched right from the get-go with a fully staffed office rather than growing slowly organically.
0: Judith, let me ask you a question to follow up on that. How do you handle or how how did you handle lazy coworkers? Whether they were tour guides or marketing people or whatever, surely there must have been someone who could have worked a little bit harder but but didn't. <laughs> well, how did you give feedback to them so that they could actually get their act together and do a good job for you?
2: That's a really good question. Let me think about this. I think demanding greatness from from those around you is really, really important. So whether it's, these are the chefs or your guides or your um, hoteliers, you try and just find the best ones and your staff, you try and hire the best staff. So you have to be a yardstick for quality. Some people aren't just used to an environment where excellence is expected. So you have to demand it from them. You have to try and find uh, people who have the same drive and determination with you fight against you know, bad attitude and complacency. So slowly, I think you weed out the people who don't belong into your circle. And demanding excellence is an effective way of lifting people to reach towards their own potential and to strive towards a common goal. So over these last 17 years, I've tried to get a small and tight circle. We are, we're not very big, but we try trying just to be the best.
1: Judith, would you be able to share with us an example of a great promotional campaign that you think is really great and that you respect?
2: can share a great um, feel-good campaign. A friend of mine has just put together for the Atlantis Palm Resort in Dubai earlier this year. It's a six-minute video clip of a really life-changing taxi ride from London to Dubai which has gone viral earlier this year and I believe so far they had over 6 million viewers. You can find it easily on YouTube. But basically the idea was that it's a story about how people... had really a tough time in their daily London life and they were given a trip of their dreams on the spot so they set up a London cab with hidden cameras and found a fantastic cabbie who picked up regular customers the viewers can be really empathetic to the daily life especially in a big city like London which can be tough you know with the weather and the tube and and brexit and whatnot and daily life pressures them so holiday anywhere is really welcome but an escape to sunny atlantis was a magical lure to it yeah the video is just really exceptionally well made it's fun it's not staged yeah kudos to the atlantis for bringing happiness to regular's lives people you know tempting them to drop everything and leave on the spot and it's really well worth the 6 minutes of your time
0: is that available on youtube or where did you see it
2: ah uh, yeah it- on youtube yeah, it's really fun to watch
1: check it out was there a time when you had this revelation about your business or your life where you thought this is what i should be doing or this is not what i should be doing and is there a recollection of a moment that you can share with us just a
2: revelation or or um, it's not as a revelation as such it's something which over time because you have to change with the way the industry is evolving. So so when we first started with Gomei on tour 17 years ago, or, you know, it's like my idea was, you know, started basically 20 years ago, travel industry was in a very different format. So we didn't have the sharing economy yet. Over the last 20 years, the way customers are looking for holidays has change so much that we we need to constantly reinvent ourselves as well and go with the times and see where we can bring added value.
0: Judith, you just said that the way people find travel today is much different than it was in the beginning when you got started with Gourmet on Tour. I'm looking ahead at the next 10 years of the food tour part of our industry and I'm also looking at products like Airbnb's experiences that they're now selling How do you think food tours as a product are going to change in the next 10 years? Do you think that they might become more one-on-one? Do you think that the Airbnb experiences they're selling will go away? What do you see changing in the next 10 years for food and beverage tours?
2: Yeah, there's an enormous amount of content out there online and for customers to choose from and book direct uh, and experiences directly. I think it's both great. It's, um, it's very transparent, but it's the amount of information out there is probably also somewhat bewildering for customers to decide which are the good experiences and which are still um, considered mass market. So I believe for a tour operator, it's really important more than ever to clearly define your niche. Focus on what you're really excellent in and provide added value for us in a specific genre. So in our case, it would be food or if you go for diving or choose an operator who really knows the industry inside out, and knows the chefs, has a personal connection with with the guides and chefs on the ground because no... Expedia or booking.com will ever have that personal connection and can find you exactly the right experience matching to your profile to your to your background to your level of expertise so i think actually now than more than ever those smaller agencies are very highly in demand
0: well judah thank you so much for your time today you've really Shared a wealth of information with us, and it's it's really a privilege to be speaking with one of the industry's pioneers. You've been at this a little bit longer than I have, even in the industry. So thank you for for sharing your words of wisdom, and we wish you all the best in your future endeavors.
2: Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Eric. And um, all the best. And I hope um, we'll meet again soon on a culinary adventure.
0: <laughs> Eat well, great. travel better. That's all for this episode of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel, produced by the World Food Travel Association. Join us next time where we learn from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. We'll meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced along with their solutions and triumphs and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, eat well and travel better.